Can you imagine 75 years ago? My God. The whole crew is all gone. I don't understand why I'm still around. I can't figure that out. Man come along and he said, would you be interested to go to the Army? And I said, yes. I was 17, but I told him I was 18. Is that going on the record? <laughs> I'm Peter McCulley. For the past four years, filmmaker Eric Brunt of Victoria has been a man on a mission, capturing the stories of World War II veterans across Canada. With an average age of 97, Eric is racing against the clock, to date having documented over 400 veteran stories. Well, here's some of those stories from both Eric and some of the veterans themselves when Today in BC continues. From hidden local hotspots to outrageous wildlife rescues and trend-setting hotels, westcoasttraveler.com shares the latest travel news from your local community and beyond. Travel the spectacular west coast of the U.S. and Canada without leaving your armchair and start taking notes for your next adventure. Make your next vacation or staycation the best it can be. Visit westcoasttraveler.com. Thanks for joining us today, Eric. Oh, thanks for having me. You'll be on the road shortly heading across B.C. and actually heading across Canada for the second time interviewing World War II veterans that you're documenting through a partnership with Melky Films and the Canadian War Museum. This project you've been working on for four years, I'm going to say, is a labor of love. Oh, it certainly is. Yeah. It's, and when I started, I never thought it'd be as long as it's taken, but every day's been great. What's the inspiration or the motivation that got you moving on this project? So how it all started is my grandfather was a World War II veteran, and as many of that generation, he didn't talk much about what he experienced. He joined up quite early in the war in 1940 and was pretty much put into an instructor position and stayed there for the whole war. And I think his mentality was, I didn't do as much as some of the other guys. And as a result, my story isn't worth sharing. I actually come across that a lot with my interviews as people who think that they aren't worthy of their story being preserved because they didn't do much compared to the other fellow. But the fact of the matter is that everyone was crucial for the war effort. So he passed away, leaving only a few stories, a few jokes here and there about his service. It really made me wonder, one, what did he do and like for five years and didn't talk about? And two, what other people were out there that were like him and just didn't want to share their story? So it all started while I was at university, developed the idea. Some other people seemed to like the idea. Raised a bunch of money on my own, saved up. Then in 2018, took off from Vancouver, leaving behind my job and my house I was living in with some buddies. And I drove across the country. Little did I know, four years plus later, I'd be going across again. But yeah, my grandfather, short answer, is what started this all. So it was really cool because I actually started thinking it'd be a short film. I was like, okay, maybe it'll be like, I feel like 10 is a good number of veterans to talk to me. So I started, and you get welcomed into their lives. You get welcomed to their homes first. You sit down with them across the living room, and then you get welcomed to their lives. And I was driving with them to, like, doctor's appointments. I was spending dinner with them. All of a sudden, I realized I, I was making a lot of friends as I was doing this. They were so thankful that I was coming by and really appreciative that somebody a bit younger was, well, a lot younger, actually, was showing a bit of interest in their story. I really just fell in love with that process of getting to meet someone who doesn't normally share their story, sitting across from them, and getting to preserve their story. So they all have buddies, and there's a lot of legions across BC. And I started making a few phone calls, and then all of a sudden people started calling me. 
And they're like, oh, can you interview my grandmother in North Battleford? Or, and can you interview my grandpa in Peterborough? And I thought, I can't really go there and on, you know, on a weekend. And so that kind of got the idea in my head that, okay, maybe there should be a Cross Canada project. And that way I can interview every person that reaches out to me in Canada. And that's what happened. You quit your job and travel coast to coast, and it was more than a year, as you say. How many veterans did you actually meet and document? The first trip was 13 months. As a result of that, I've interviewed 416. I've been doing a few this summer. The goal is to get somewhere close to 500, was where I'm going to end up, hopefully. So 13 months on the road, and that was all either on my dime or I had a GoFundMe that people could donate to keep me on the road because I ran out of money after four months and I have so many more people I need to interview. Thankfully, people were really supportive. So I raised a bit over 30000 on the GoFundMe, which kept me on the road. And also, I was sleeping in my van most of the time, like camping. And once it hit, the coldest day I got was January 4th. And I had GoFundMe coming in at that point. I thought, you just got to rent a room through Airbnb because otherwise I'm going to freeze or my footage is going to freeze or something's going to happen here. So this next trip, I've got funded by Melky Films and the Canadian War Museum. So that's going to be a huge help. So probably going to be on the road until January for this round. Perhaps you could share with us a few of the actual comments from some of the interviews that you've had. I interview veterans from all different services, one of them being the Navy. And I put together a clip for the Royal Canadian Navy for the Battle of the Atlantic Day, which is in May, I put together a few of these Navy veterans sharing their stories, and you can have a listen here. The only thing I'd ever been on was a raft on the river that we built. I'd never even been in a canoe. I don't swim. Well, I figured it doesn't matter. Nobody can swim 2,000 miles, so... <laughs> I just didn't think of it. I just I wanted to join in the Navy. I wasn't the only guy that would say, hey, I'm only a little kid, I'm not going to go and fight. We all wanted to go. We all had different reasons, true. It was a 14-day transit across what was then called the Black Hole or the Black Pit because there was no air support, didn't have the range, so we were entirely on our own. The Germans decided to sink as many ships as they could, crossing from the North American continent to England with supplies. When you think back, I guess the scariest part was, say, in the middle of the night, about 2 in the morning, you'd get an action station bell ringing. Well, you knew there was a sub. You had to get up on the deck as quickly as you could. It's either feast or famine. You know, either things are very exciting or, or things are pretty dull when you're doing the convoy. So you never know. There were only so many submarines sunk by the Canadian Navy during the war, and all you wanted to do was get one and prove it. I can see that submarine sitting there. <laughs> it's is my dreams, almost. And we picked up the submarine, and we closed in on it, and that's when we dropped the bombs on it and destroyed it. And then, as it was going down, their sailors are dropping off, and they scared, they're yelling, they're swimming around. Then we picked them up and we knew they could speak English because one guy was in the water and he was drifting away and he knew the word help. HMCS Valleyfield, she got a torpedo. It was a 225 guys were sunk on that one. They tied ropes around us, put us down the scrambling net. We're down there trying to get the guys out of the water. Yeah, terrible. We're covering oil and blood and everything. We're down there just about an hour 
trying to pick the guys out of the water. They lost a lot of men. Some of these guys, they choked to death. The bunker oil and, and, and the salt water, when we pulled them out of the water, put them on the deck, they died, they, they suffocated. You ask a 17-year-old kid, does he know what war is? Nine out of 10 will tell you they have no idea. War is hell, there's no doubt, until you see it. I think about the fellows I went to school with that never came back, you know, in high school. I remember one fellow particularly, every girl in high school was nuts about him. And a hell of a good athlete, despite all his attributes, he was one of the nicest guys in high school that I ever met, you know. And when I heard that he got killed, I really felt badly. It's not easy for me to talk about it. But I think it's very important that they keep it in front of the kids. In a way, is to let them know that war is not fun. It's hell. Eric, how many Canadians served in World War II, and how many do you estimate are still with us today? So I think the number is 1.1 million served, Canadians served in the Second World War. 50,000 women, I think it was, out of that number. And, and the women were all volunteers, which is interesting. So the men were eventually conscripted, but the women were all volunteers. So Veterans Affairs, the last number they put out was last March 2021. It was a little over 20,000, so there's got to be less than 20,000 now. And that is, I think, 1% of the veterans remaining who would have served. The average age is 97. If they're any younger than that, they would have had to lie about their age or basically just joined up and then the war ended. I'd say my average age of interviews is probably 99. I'm interviewing a 104-year-old, so that will be interesting. I've done a few of those. I'd say this round is harder to find interviews to do 100% because when it was 2018, 2019, the average age was 95, 94, and I was finding a lot more, but gosh, it's really the last opportunity here. That window of opportunity is coming smaller, and it's scary, but it also really motivates me to try and do as many as I can. You mentioned that most of these veterans probably would have been 18 or so when they served in World War II. Was there a common thread running through the interviews when they talked about their service? You alluded to something. There are a few for sure. I'd say one of the ones that for some reason always sticks out to me is that like these people were from these small towns or very small cities, the war was an opportunity for them to leave that farm behind, that small town behind, and really get to see the world. A lot of them talk about like the first time they ever took a train was when they joined the military. The first time they ever took a ship was the first time they went overseas to England. Yeah, there's an excitement in their stories of getting to see the world, basically, getting to see other parts of Canada they didn't know would have existed, getting to see England, some of them getting to see Europe. And so that's a really interesting, like these little 18, 19-year-olds were really getting to see more of the world that they never would have had to. And the other through line is always, they always say, usually these three words, and that's a uh, war is hell. They always share that sentiment that there are no winners in a war. It's, it's terrible. They saw a lot of loss, either personally, or there was friends they lost, or family members. A lot of them even got to meet Germans, like prisoners of war, and got to see how similar they really were to the Canadians and realized that they were just doing a job too. They lost their brothers and they lost their friends. The beginning is very much like this exciting place of, yeah, let's go and fight this war and let's do what's right. And at the end, it, always the interviews kind of end on that note of, this was a terrible thing and let's just, let's share this story in hopes that it will never be repeated and that we can learn from the past and make sure we don't repeat those mistakes if at all possible. There's a great photo of you with a veteran, Frank Kreps, taken at Juno Beach on the anniversary of D-Day in 2019. That was the 75th anniversary. You had interviewed him at his home in Red Deer. 
Tell us about Frank, his story, and the Juno Beach experience. That's one of my favorite photos for sure. It was actually the very first time I got in the newspaper. It was a Black Press article, The Red Deer Advocate. And the reporter interviewed me. And then was, there's a veteran in town. His name is Frank Kreps. You should give him a call. So I call him up. And it was so funny because usually the veterans are like, oh, come in a week or come in a couple of days. Frank is like, what are you doing this afternoon? You want to come over? I was like, yeah, I don't have anything going on. Let's do it. So come over. I feel like you meet some people in life and there's like an instant connection. And that was definitely what I experienced. He just really had started talking about his story now. Maybe he was 94 at the time. And he just opened up to the Red Deer Advocate reporter. So here I come along and Frank was hesitant to share a story. And he basically told me that there's some things I just can't talk about. As I always say with the veterans, I'm just here to get as much as you're willing to share. And I don't want to push you too far. So let's see what we can do. And we ended up talking for probably four hours, I want to say. Like, it was a long one. He was basically a dispatch rider. These are these guys that ride the motorcycles in between different platoons and different companies, basically relaying messages in between. Back then, you don't have a cell phone. The wireless set might not have a signal, so you can't communicate to the men a couple miles down the road. And bear in mind, like, down the road, it's not even a road. It's, like, countryside or forest. The roads are probably what you want to avoid because the Germans might still be there or there might be mines on this road. He also talked about there'd be times where there'd be, like, wire run across like two trees so if you weren't careful like it could take your head off quite literally so he had to be really careful and navigate this area sometimes not even knowing whether he's in german territory or whether he's in allied territory he said he was alone for a lot of the time which i think would have been extra hard because a lot of these guys talk about the military experience and like how he became such good friends with everyone he didn't really have that it was just him on his own trying to get these messages across so that people could keep moving forward and maybe get help if they needed it. I asked him at the end of the interview, have you ever been back? And he said, no, he actually lived in a trailer in a trailer park and he's never had the money to do it. I've been interested, but just hasn't ever worked out. And I, I remember in the back of my mind thinking like, I gotta get Frank back somehow. The, this was early on in my trip, like probably June, 2018. So months go by and then I hear about the next year, uh, there's gonna be a, a 75th anniversary in France and that the Canadian government's looking for veterans to pay their entire trip uh, to go over there. And immediately I was like, okay, Frank's got to go. Like, there's no, there's no question. So I make a bunch of phone calls, send a bunch of emails. And I, of course I call Frank and I say, there's no guarantees, but if I can make this work, do you want to go? And would one of your sons want to go? Cause he had a few sons. And it's like, yeah, I, I would love to, like, if you can, let's, I, let's make it happen. So we made it happen and he got picked. And I think there was 37 World War II veterans helped him and a woman actually go over. So her name is Eugenie from Kelowna. And I helped the two of them apply to go over there. And both were accepted. Both went over. And uh, I wasn't going to go at first because I was spending all my money on this trip. And Frank called me and he's like, I think I was in Montreal at the time. Frank was like, you got to come. He's like, I'm going. You have to go. And so I called my dad. And I was like, can you help me buy my ticket? And my dad's like, yeah, I'll pay for your plane ticket if you pay for the rest. And so that's what made the trip happen. And I got to see Frank back in Normandy and do a bit of the tour with him. Oh my gosh, being on the beach with him was such a surreal experience, especially because he hadn't been there for, well, yeah, 75 years, a little less. But the hardest part and maybe the most powerful part was like going to the cemeteries. And there's a moment where we're going through the cemetery together and he points out this person. And this person was from Saskatchewan. I recognize the name. And he's dead. He's died when he was 24, I think. I actually have this on camera. Frank does a salute to his friend that would have died from Saskatchewan or this guy that he would have known. And it was like such a full circle moment for me to have someone that I'd interviewed 
that shared their store with me to be saluting the grave of someone who'd done the exact same thing as Frank, but had sadly lost his life over there. That's really a big part of what this project is for, is to remember those guys too, like not just the ones who have survived, but the men and the women who went overseas and never came back and keep their story alive. Because I think as long as this history is repeated and maybe even their name is repeated, that's how we're going to remember. And if we don't repeat it, then we're going to forget and forget what they went through and forget their ultimate sacrifice. The physical reminder of that is that gravestone that says 24 years old. The last part of that is, is maybe the saddest is they have this inscription at the bottom and it's guess what their mom or their wife would have written. It's like a personalized message on every single gravestone. I get chills just talking about it. It's mothers writing the last thing to their son. It's crazy. But if you ever have a chance, you got to go to France and go to these cemeteries, really pay your respects. That's what really it's all about. It's right there in that cemetery, for me at least. Frank talks a lot about freedom, and he talks a lot about like how proud he is to hang his Canadian flag out there to pay his, his respects and remember. That really sums it up to me, is hearing Frank say those words. And when he says that he really appreciates what I'm doing, when times are getting hard and money's running out, like remembering Frank and other veterans telling me that is what motivates me to keep going. To this day, I should have been killed. I should have been. My job was to dispatch messages, you see. People depend on me getting through. The boys in the battalions come hell on wheels. <laughs> I guess I was. <laughs> I served because it was my duty to look out to my country. And that is one thing. I have my flag. I'm pretty proud of Canada and what we did for Canada. I'm saying this from the bottom of my heart that I really appreciate what you're doing. I really do. And I'm sure all veterans think the same way. And it's going to help. I know it will. Oh, definitely. Get let people knowledge about what's past and hope it never happens again to them. That's all we can do. When Today in BC continues, Eric Brunt shares some of the many stories of veterans that he has gathered along the way. From the latest community news to informative, entertaining reads for travelers and the cannabis curious, just visit your local Black Press Media community newspaper website to sign up today. Today in BC is a Black Press Media podcast. I'm Peter McCulley. Berlin, that was a big one to go to. You looked down, it was just like a fire pit. Everything seemed to be burning, you know, and Planes going down. It was just a madhouse. Then the captain yelled out, abandoned ship. That's a word I never wanted to hear. But I'm not going down with this goddamn ship. I'm going to take a chance and swim. You know, when a bullet goes by, you can hear it snap. It comes out of the air and it snaps and hits something. It might be one of your friends. You lived with that every day. Who was going to be missing tomorrow? I mean, they lost their lives when they were 20 years old. And here I sit, and I got to live my life. There's an element, a little bit of guilt there. Why me? If people only knew how good it is to have peace, that you can move around and you don't have tanks coming down your street. There's a lineup of people down the street and on the rooftops and on the windows, they're just cheering because they've been free. They've been freed. Those people 
They were dancing. They were jumping up and down. They were singing. They were crying. They were shouting. And it was just a, a feeling of joy that I don't think anybody really could experience unless you've been through what they'd been through. If you don't know your history, you don't know who you are. You don't know what you are enjoying. You and I are sitting here discussing in complete freedom, free to do whatever we want. My God, the rest of the world would love that kind of experience. And that's what we fought for. Eric, you've said your project's about preserving the stories of veterans, those who have never told their experiences or had their experiences documented before because really they've just never talked about being in the war. And you're looking to talk particularly at this point to women and people of color. Basically, what I've been trying to do is get as many diverse veterans as possible. I think when people imagine a veteran, they think of the typical white soldier in the front line. There's so much more than that. It's people of color. It's women that were, in some cases, even in England and even went over to the mainland to help out. Women that lost their lives. There's a lot of really interesting stories when it comes to Chinese Canadians, when it comes to Indigenous veterans. There was one gentleman in particular who was a code talker I interviewed. And this is really interesting because at this time in Canadian history, the residential schools are happening and the Indigenous populations are being discouraged from using their language and trying to be assimilated and speak in English or in French in the case of Quebec. For him, he's a Mohawk veteran, spoke Mohawk, and the U.S. Army actually sees this potential and uses these Mohawk people speaking their language over the radio system while they're in the South Pacific because I guess their language is so different from what the Japanese were used to that when it was English, they could decipher it. But Mohawk, they have no idea, especially if it's coded words in Mohawk. His name's Levi Oaks. He sadly passed away now. He would speak Mohawk over the wireless set and be like, there are tanks here or there are troops here or there's ammunitions here. That way, the U.S. Army was able to figure out where things were. The sad thing about it is like these men were really unique roles and they come back to Canada or the States and back where they started and it's their language was suppressed again and they were sworn to secrecy and couldn't talk about what they had done until I think the 1980s, at which point many of these indigenous men had passed away. That is a really interesting story for me because it's like, why were these people not sharing their story? A lot of them, after they were able to, didn't want to because after I was treated, like, why would I want to share my story or be involved with the military? So that was really important for me to get that story preserved and make sure that people know that side of the war as well as some of these other groups, which have really fascinating stories and were using really unique roles, but were either sworn to secrecy, so couldn't talk about it, or were maybe disgruntled about their experience after the war and just kept quiet until now. So I really focused on trying to find those voices, and they're hard to find. We've done a handful, I think 10 Indigenous veterans, and each of them have been so interesting, and they're 97 now. So adds an extra layer to making it more hard. You mentioned you're going to be interviewing a vet who is 104. Would that be the oldest vet that you've interviewed to date? Another interesting point and funny that you asked that question is the 104-year-old is actually an African-American veteran, and he fought for the States and then immigrated to Canada in the 1950s. I saw his service record, and it's a regiment I've never even heard of. There's not really very many Americans that immigrated to Canada after the war, so I don't do very many American interviews. So that one should be a really interesting one. I'm looking forward to that. But the oldest interview I've done, the man is now 110. And he turns 111 in December. I would have been 2018, I spoke to him. He would probably have been 106. So he was the oldest, and it's so interesting with him because his name's Rupin Sinclair. And he was one of my first ones. He was a friend from universities 
great-grandfather, and he was in the Air Force. I always get pictures of the veterans holding a, a picture of themselves during the war. Usually you're astounded because how young they look, and they're like, I can't believe this teenager was fighting in the war. He showed me his picture, and he's like a man in his 30s. It was a funny thing because I'm so used to just seeing the picture. He was a 30-year-old during the war. He was married and I think maybe even had a kid during the war, which is also a rare story. But he just served in Canada, but served for a great number of years. He's a Jewish gentleman and a great guy, and yeah, still alive. Nobody has claimed that he's the oldest veteran in Canada, but I would bet a lot of money that he is because I've never met anyone even remotely close to his age. Eric, if you've done over 400 interviews, there must be more than a few stories that have stuck with you for various reasons. Maybe you could share a few with us. One of the ones that is actually the last one I interviewed is probably just the most fresh in my head, and he was amazing. He was in Couch and Bay, and his name is Doc Payne. Doc was really interesting because he was a pilot, and that was kind of what everyone wanted to be when they joined the Air Force was the pilot, and he got to be one, which was pretty cool. Eventually, he started flying Lancasters, which for those listeners that don't know, it's a big plane that fits seven people and drops bombs over Nazi-occupied Europe. You had to do 30 missions, and each mission was extremely dangerous. Once you did 30, then you had done a tour of operations, and you could be an instructor, you could go back to camp. Some guys wanted to do another round, crazy people, but all you basically had to do was 30. So they did 13, and they got hit over Scandinavia. I think even over Norway, their plane is slowly going down. The men are keeping as calm as possible, and he's trying to figure out what he's going to do. They try and go to Sweden because they think they could maybe land in Sweden, but they're running out of fuel. The plane isn't on fire, but the engines aren't working as they should be. Being a pretty good pilot by the sounds of it, he gets it as low as he possibly can over the Baltic Sea, and he lands it in the water. There's a lifeboat aboard, and it gets activated by salt water. It blows up. The guys jump on during the crash. He gets ejected out of the plane, so he has to swim to the lifeboat. Sadly, one of the seven men don't make it on, so he drowns with the plane. There's six guys on this lifeboat, and they spend 10 days on this lifeboat with no water, little tiny bit of food. They had emergency kits on the lifeboat, and they open it up, and whoever had packed it hadn't packed it. So there was nothing aboard the emergency uh, rations that they thought they'd be able to survive on. So it's six of them. Anytime they see any aircraft, they're trying to wave it down. Thankfully, it wasn't too rough. They did have a few rough days. I saw a picture of it, and it's this tiny little boat, and there's six of them. They kept a bit of water in the boat on their feet because they found it warmer because it's six degrees, seven degrees out there. It's like April in uh, Northern Europe. Like, it's not a pleasant time of year to be there. They have injuries, and, like, his nose is broken. He's got shrapnel in his legs from when the, the plane was shot up. So they're just hanging on by a thread. And then a German fisherman comes across them and basically saves them. And they get brought back to Germany, become prisoners of war temporarily. As luck would have it, the war ends a little less than a month later. So they're free. When the victory actually happens, he's in the hospital. He's got trench foot from the stagnant water their feet were in. He's got injuries with his nose, his legs. And he talks about what he went through, and it's, it's so matter-of-fact. I'm probably pumping it up more than he ever did. It's just, oh, and then it was the 10th day we were out in the sea, and it's 10 days, what the, like, it's crazy. He's so humble. Their whole generation is extremely humble. This guy went through basically living hell to survive. It's stories like that that makes me really appreciate what these men went through and what these men risked. And sadly, one of these guys lost his life to fight the war and, in effect, make sure that we have what we have today. I get to hear stories like that almost every week, and it's pretty, pretty incredible. You've mentioned over a million people served in World War II. Was that 
both in Canada and overseas. I know my dad and a couple of his brothers worked in a shipyard in Nova Scotia for a few years to help with the war effort, but they were not active in the service. So do they count? And were any of those part of a million in Canada? 1.1 million would have worn the uniform. So would have worn the Army, Navy, or Air Force uniform. Yeah, your father and, and his brothers, they wouldn't have counted as the 1.1 million, but there were so many other people that were doing war work like that. It's crazy to think about because I think the population in Canada at that time was 11 million. So you have 1.1 million wearing uniform and then so many others contributing to the war effort in some way. A lot of women did that as well, and they're not technically veterans, but they still did a lot to help either in the ammunitions factories, working on like airports, but weren't considered veterans. It's crazy that out of a country that small, there were so many people either wearing uniform or working towards the war effort in some capacity. You mentioned something about a van. I just want you to expand on that a little bit. You were traveling across the country in a van. The van still is alive, but I'm not going to use the van this time. The van that I took for the 13-month trip in 2018 to 2019 is a Ford Transit Connect. My dad and his friend converted that into a van I could sleep in. So there's a bed that also turns into a couch if I want to like sit and do editing. Basically, I'd either go to campgrounds or if there was like a remote area, just like park on the side of the road or a field and sleep there to save money. I slept in the van until January 4th. My water bottle was freezing over every night. But this trip I'm going across, I now have funding, which is incredible because it's taken quite a while. So yeah, from Melky Films, which is a documentary production company in Montreal that I now work with, and the Canadian War Museum in Ottawa, I'm going to be able to afford sleeping in Airbnbs and hotels. I bought my dad's Prius and it's going to be good on gas. That's going to be the mode of transportation this time around. So Eric, we started out talking about your grandfather, who was the impetus for starting all of this project that you've been on and continue to work on. What would your grandpa say about the project if he were here today? It's a good question. My grandfather, if he knew about the project today, he would probably laugh and make some sort of joke because he was such a jokester. I, I can't even picture what he would say. It's fun to try and think about that, but he would be like, what did I start? What is this mess I created or something like that? Downplaying that he was the one that started this all. I think he would be proud. I hope he would be proud of the fact that I was inspired by not hearing his story. What would be great is if... He, saw, he knew what I was doing, and then I could interview him. That's the story I would like the most, probably, is just to hear him talk about the five years in his service. That would be the biggest reward, is to hear that story. I sometimes hope that maybe I'll meet a veteran who knew my grandpa and be like, oh, yeah, he was great. But that hasn't happened yet, and maybe never will. But each time I do an interview, I think I understand a bit more about what he went through and the circumstances and even the risk he would have taken by volunteering and being in the Air Force. He could have been one of those guys that were shot down in the Baltic Sea and didn't survive. That makes me really appreciate what he did more and more. I'd like to thank Eric Brunt for being with us on this edition of Today in BC. If you have suggestions or comments, send a voice message to podcast at blackpress.ca. You may be part of our podcast mailbag segment. You'll find Today in BC podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, iHeart, and Google Podcasts. Mm-hmm.